0: The following interview was originally recorded in April of 2012. Welcome to the CDC Podcast. I am your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is the blog father himself, Michael Abbott, the Brainy Gamer. Hi, Eric. Hello. <laughs> uh, I guess to start off, uh, introduce yourself
1: a little in a little more detail. Well, I teach theater and film studies at Wabash College. I've been here since uh, 1994. I'm the chair of the theater department, and about well, 10 years ago or so, I started offering the occasional seminar, and which sort of grew into some courses in uh the Art and History of Video Games, and that sort of morphed into offering a video game in an all-college course uh, that we teach here, so all the students get to have that experience. And so, you know, i been spending a lot of time in my career trying to figure out how to incorporate interactive media into a liberal arts education. Like you said, I write the, the Brandy Gamer, and I do a podcast as well. And yeah, I'm, I go to GDC and some other conferences and meet people and sort of find out what's going on. I love talking to designers and just doing my thing.
0: You said, so you've been uh, trying to incorporate video game courses, or at least a course, for about 10 years now. But Brainy Gamers, when did it start? Like 2007, wasn't it? The end of 2007?
1: Yeah, I started it in uh, August of of 2007.
0: Oh, so so you've actually been trying to do this even longer than you've been blogging. That's interesting. Like, what, like, keyed you into video games as something worth studying, something worth looking at critically?
1: It's funny, you know, I, I don't think I quite understood that they were before I even... I mean, to to me, what really got me going was this kind of obvious convergence among the things I'm interested in. So video games and theater and film, and I'm interested in issues related to performance and representation, character, storytelling, avatar, that all the ways that these roads kind of all intersect between and among these things. So I think I just started noticing that I, I wasn't the only person, I'm sure. And I just noticed I began re- referring to games in my classes just without even really intending to. They just started to become kind of part of our regular conversation. And, you know, a fair number of my students were, were playing them, were aware of them. You know, a game like Deus Ex, for example, you know, you're having a conversation about something and it pops up, you know, it's, there's a lot of different little strands that you could grab onto with that game thematically or otherwise. And I just noticed that started happening more often. And I guess gradually I started to examine that and then I got a sabbatical from teaching, a little break, to take on a project, and I thought, you know, it's now or never. So uh, I started Brainy Gamer and sort of to see what would happen, and I've been to, been at it ever since.
0: You seem to have actually become the center for all the early video game critic circles. Did you like specifically reach out to other bloggers, or did they just happen to find you, and you were just early enough in
1: the process? Yeah, I think it was mostly just serendipity. I mean, I think that that particular time really was the time when when everyone was launching something. Uh, and I remember I was in a coffee shop one day and I got a pop up little message. I can't remember if it was email or or what Twitter. And it was from this kid in Australia named Ben Abraham. And You know, he he I think he may have posted a comment or two on my on my blog. But he was just sort of really interested in games and kind of, you know, the conversation about it. And and that exchange sort of was kind of representative of the kind of things that were happening then that we all Started talking about this, and either you started a blog and kind of got going on that, or you know you were a commenter on blogs, or you maybe visited a podcast or did a podcast. A lot of those got started then too. And I don't know. I just happened to be there at the same time everyone else was. I think maybe the podcast helped me make connections because I started doing these gamer confabs. You know, where I would invite people on and they would just talk about games. You know, and and they weren't like celebrities. They were just people like me who were writers about games or, or game critics kind of in that nascent period of game criticism and so I thought they were fun to have on uh people like Chris Dallin and
0: yeah and, we, know, we stole our funny.
1: title from you oh from, yeah
0: from you yeah critic uh CDC is critical distance confab
1: right yeah yeah I remember we, you know trying to figure out what word could could, could I use it's you know it, it's getting people together to have chat sessions you know and letting people listen and so I think that was part of it too, and it was great because then I met some of these people in real life at a conference or two, and I think that really helps kind of seal the deal when you can see someone outside of, you know, Skype microphone thing, you know, when you actually make a human connection.
0: Yeah, I uh, when I you were probably one of the first blogs I found in the when I first in introduced thanks to a link on a link and i did and i went back and read everything that you had written at that point and i think i've kept up and it seems that you have a very you have like an in-between style between academia and like just voicing thoughts and stream of consciousness style care to comment on on Um, how you write
1: yeah i think there are times when it feels like a game is sort of in my wheelhouse if you know what i mean i'm interested in certain things either as an academic interest or well, like, for example, the, the most recent stuff I've been writing, I've been writing about Journey, and I'm very interested in Buddhism and spirituality and you know, practice and meditation, and it clicks in those particular ways, and I, I have more than, you know, kind of a cursory knowledge of that stuff. I'm very, I've been interested in it for many years, and so those points of connection were sort of natural for me to talk about, and I know stuff about it that maybe some of my readers don't know, so I can kind of can make those connections And I do that with theater and film as well. Like when I wrote about Sleep No More, for example, this theater production in New York that a lot of people wrote about and were interested in, it seemed to me sort of the first time that I'd seen a really powerful mainstream popular culture event from the old school you know, of the arts, like theater, sort of very directly impacted by video games. It was really borrowing heavily from video games in terms of the way it conveyed meaning and stuff. So... That kind of again in my wheelhouse, so I like writing about that. But sometimes I don't know, I just um, I'm kind of in the conversation with everybody else. When Bioshock came out, I think a lot of us kind of went crazy on that, and Red Dead Redemption. I remember just kind of writing sort of free form about what it was like playing that game.
0: You also had one of the better posts on that, killing the shopkeeper every week.
1: Right, that was fun. Yeah, I mean, I I think sometimes a game just kind of grabs you, you know, like you have to write about it. I don't write as many posts as I used to when I first started. I mean, I was really kind of, you know, crazy. And I had a lot of free time because I was on my sabbatical, like I said, and you know, when you're trying to build an audience and trying to just get people to know you're there, you need to keep feeding the beast because if you disappear for a while, people think you're gone. And so now that I've been around for a while and I have, you know, some subscribers and, you know, a fairly consistent presence then I don't feel that kind of, like really burdensome obligation like around the holidays or when you're really busy I've got to keep you know writing I keep posting now I just write when I feel like I have something to say and that that turns out to be you know a couple of times a week maybe more and you know I've taken a break from the podcast to sort of reboot it reformat it and sort of rethink what are people already doing what don't I need to do anymore and how can I offer something different and and so I've got a a new one in the pipeline and ready to uh release later this week
0: uh, one thing I remember from your early days is that you actually didn't just start like a conversation or like with the comments or respond to like a post with a post of your own with someone else's. You actually invited a uh, sort of letter series styles back and forth between different writers and actually hosted it on your blog. I remember you did that with Braid with, uh, was it Wes Erdelak you did? Yeah, huh? And you, and then again in 2008, uh, well, Really, 2009, because you did it in January, uh, with uh, the Prince of Persia, where you seemed to like do a miniature roundup of what everyone was saying at the time.
1: Yeah, that was fun. I, I maybe I should do that some more. I like those conversations. Uh, I think to some degree, like sites like Critical Distance, are kind of doing some of that work. I think maybe I feel a little bit less compelled to do certain things because other people have kind of taken up that that game. Um, you know, if you want to know what people are writing in this area, you you know, it's a pretty good bet to go check out critical distance each week or rock, paper, shotgun, Sunday papers, those kinds of roundups where you can, you know, very quickly see. And oftentimes the, the way those are structured, as you know, uh, is they'll collect like several different articles on journey, let's say, and kind of bundle them all together. So if you're interested in knowing more, you can read all three of these or four of these pieces. I, I did like that. I mean, I think the kind of a letter back and forth, conversation back and forth. It can be fun to do. Yeah, it, it seemed like nowadays
0: that happens rather regularly, sometimes formally, sometimes it, it just one person responds to another. But it seems like you were, like, maybe not intentionally, but foundationally creating that sort of thing back before the critical circles had really figured out what they were or even found each other, yet you were trying to bridge everything together.
1: Yeah, I think we were pretty influenced by certain people. Um, you, as you may recall, Around that time, I think the most notable conversations going on about games were happening between Enn uh, Guy Kroll and Stephen Totillo When Enn uh, Guy was at New York and Stephen was at TV, and they used to do these conversations back and forth, which were, you know, entertaining but also illuminating about games. And they were both, you know, they're both really smart guys and articulate. And Lee Alexander was also a very influential and and very helpful to me because she was doing her thing before I was. And I, you know, you when you first start out, natural to sort of, and somebody who's doing it well and doing it visibly for, with a certain amount of traffic to say, hey, would you take a look at my stuff and tell me what you think? And it was just immediately very encouraging to me and linked to me. And, you know, the stuff that you do, that's just, you know, invaluable to a you know, upstart. And, you know, and then there were other people too. Certainly Chris Dolan was doing a lot of writing and paste and places like that around that time, and, uh, uh, you know, Banana Pepper Martinis was, was a site that was a lot of fun around that time, and Pop Matters, things like that, so there there were people writing, places writing about games that had my attention before it
0: And you wanted to talk to them more directly? Was it, is that how that came about?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, during that time, we, we were all still trying to figure out where this was all going to go, and it was... I think when it became clear that you could write about something and pretty much be sure that other people that you really wanted to read it would be reading it, you'd have a natural conversation about somebody's piece they wrote last, you know, the week before. Hey, I saw your piece from yesterday. I mean, we were just voraciously reading everybody's stuff. And it really was this the momentum behind the the formation of the community was totally unplanned. It just happened. And I think it had a lot to do with the fact that. A lot of us had spent a long part in our, of our lives playing games and feeling slightly guilty about it. You know like marginalized our interest games sort of made us whatever geeks or something. And suddenly there was just this really interesting, smart, particular group of people who were writing really thoughtful stuff about video games. like, this is my family. <laughs> so we immediately gravitated to each other and started having conversations.
0: I have to bring this up, but uh, Daniel Golding at, at the now defunct Subject Navigator, at the end of was it 2008, he wrote the uh, now infamous post mapping the brainy sphere, yeah, to trying to categorize like where everyone was sitting at that point, and it became a term for quite a while. But you, you didn't seem to uh, quite appreciate it as much,
1: probably rightfully so. Get uh your thoughts on that? Well, <laughs> I don't mean. I love the fact that he, he did that, that he rounded up all of these blogs because, there were, again, at that point, that was before anybody had a clearinghouse of any kind. And so I think he tried really hard to, you know, find as many of the interesting sites as he could and list them and, it was, you know, got had gotten to be a pretty hard task. So I know he worked really hard on it. And, you know, you're always going to make a mistake and you're always going to, like, leave somebody out and then that's going to be interpreted as, oh, well, you know, you have a bias against this or that. And. In his case, I think he really tried hard to be very inclusive and just figure out as well as he could who was writing what. I don't know where that term came from. Uh, It it never sat well with me because it it didn't seem like... I don't know. I think people attributed that phrase to somehow having my blog as as some kind of, um, I don't know, oversized influence that it didn't actually have and as some sort of like hub of this wheel that it didn't actually exist as. I think it was just kind of a a nice little phrase for him to use and i don't know just maybe i think it 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 put a certain kind of undue prominence on what i was doing when really if you step back and look at it a lot of us were doing a lot of the same things producing the same amount of material at the same time so
0: Mm, i don't know I i i at the time it kind of made does kind of make sense because like the people that he knew of the people he talked to were centered around you because that's how everyone found each other through you. And your, I guess like desires to make
1: connections. Yeah. I, I think it just, I think it's sad, uh, wrong with some people. I think rightly so. People are like, oh well, yeah, come on. Like, uh, that, you know, that does, that's not quite right. I mean, I I know for a fact that certain people did not that phrasing or that term. And I totally got why. And I, uh, you know, so i <laughs> I wasn't about to champion it or something. I was just—I would prefer just sort of back away and say, "Look, uh, find another term. That's fine for this post, but let's not let that catch on." You know, it's not—it doesn't sit quite well with me either.
0: Yeah, a lot, a lot of us actually did take you up on that and try and find a neutral
1: term for it. <laughs> Yeah, I think Ludo Decahedron was was in play for a while, but it just doesn't exactly come trippingly really off the tongue. So some of us still
0: push it. Some of us still push it. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> Not just
1: me. Chris Ligman
0: has taken a real liking to it, and she runs- yes
1: yeah, she, she, she uses that term. It's a great word. I love it. It's just you know, it, you know, you probably want something that's a little catchier. You want to <laughs> grab the cultural cachet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh,
0: I actually uh, found you around the time that you were starting your RPG course. What, what is it called? The uh, you're like giving your students like a breadth of RPGs, a history. Yeah. lesson. What's that? What's that word? It's a seminar course that I offered. Seminar.
1: And it it was this one, this particular one that I wrote about was for freshmen only, so it was all students, of, you know, the same age, had a lot of the same experiences. And
0: what was interesting though is that you opened it up to the community to find out what RPGs should you use in your seminar course. Yeah,
1: that was fun. I mean, it was great to sort of plow through all the suggestions people made and everyone had their cherished special game, you know, that the one that changed their gaming lives and felt very very precious in some cases. But for the most part, it was great because I, I really did get a ton of, of great suggestions and you can easily start to tabulate which is what i did you know how many people suggested game x or game y and it wasn't a popularity contest i mean i had a pretty good sense of, of some of the ones i wanted to do regardless of who voted for them but there were quite a few cases where games maybe i you know you can't play every game and i think certain games maybe i hadn't paid enough attention to got a lot of attention in the in the suggestions and i probably looked at them harder
0: yeah and it seems like uh, i think it was years later what actually came down is that you – I guess you were you, – have you done this course like every year or just every two years?
1: Yeah, I've done it. I guess since then I've done it in that particular version one more time, and then I've taught another course that has RPG content in it a couple times.
0: After that, it seems like the next time you did the course or maybe a few times later, you noticed a change in your students between, with your curriculum and with regards to Ultima Four.
1: Yeah, that's um... – It's interesting because I think if you teach long enough, you start to see these kinds of shifts or, you know, you see students on a certain kind of, you can use a kind of pedagogical approach that suddenly stops working and either you're like doing it wrong or somehow what you were assuming is true about this group of students is no longer true. And with with pedagogy, you know, you've got to sort of examine your approach to say, well, gosh, you know, like last year, I ate this up, you know, or two years ago, when I had great success. Suddenly it's I'm dying here, you know, <laughs> and it, it, it was clear to me that um, it was mostly just about the skill set that they brought to playing games. And over time, students' common experiences became less and less connected to, you know, what we would they call old school game, old school RPGs like Ultima 4. And they just got to a point where they really just lacked the capacity for being able to even able to handle it.
0: Or the, I guess, the change in literacy, you could say.
1: That's a, yeah, that's a great term for it. I think it's just game literacy. How, what, what is your literacy? What set of expectations do you have coming into a game? And uh, you know, if you're at a certain age, you've played games for a certain amount of time. Let's say you may have a very easy time remembering opening a box. I mean, it's just that, right? My, my students don't open boxes anymore, <laughs> for one thing. But you know, opening a box pulling out a manual or a set of materials that went with the game and like pouring over them because that was part of the experience. I mean, that's unheard of today. Nobody pulls anything out of a box other than a disc. If they even use a disc and the game itself is supposed to tell you everything you need to know. So, you know, that just simply doesn't work with older games. You've got to know more. And in the case of Ultima four, it comes with this whole set of, you know, this lore, with information in it that's written tailored for the gamer to know, and if you don't have that in front of you, I mean you literally can't play the game does
0: this seem to happen faster with video games?
1: Yeah, I think it does because you know this the the way it's sh- that whole what what gaming is, what the experience of gaming is has changed so radically, whereas something like watching a film or reading a book i mean it's just incremental, right? I think you could the changes there mostly are about attention span and uh you know literacy is less about you know kind of formal skills which in the gaming it is and more about just what sorts of how able students are to process things coming at them at a certain pace or a certain density
0: does the change in literacy uh affect of course it affects experience but rather their reception to what they think of the game like when they could have done it how what was it like the general consensus on ultima four
1: i think you're going to turn on some students to those older games partly because i think they don't think they'll like them. It's sort of like when I teach black and white films. I mean, almost none of my students ever watch black and white movies uh, before they see me in class for the first time. I mean, like literally they've, they've never seen one black and white film from beginning to end. So it can be a real treat when you show them a Fritz Lang movie, for example, and they like really dig it, you know, and suddenly they're like, whoa, okay, (laughs) let's look at a few more of these. And I think You know, text adventures are a great example. Text adventures, I mean, they just think, are you kidding me? Like seriously, like words on a screen and I hit enter with (laughs) like scrolling text is the most animation I'm going to get the whole game. But when they become convinced that, you know, go ahead and draw the map, go ahead and get the graph paper, go ahead and map it out, see what happens, you know, get your figure out if you can get out of this room and they do and they get one more step and one more step, then they can very possibly get hooked.
0: But it's yeah. not just beyond that because it's like a difference if you like hand them Zork versus if you handed them some obscure thing that you'd gotten at a computer show twenty years before that no one had ever heard of. It's like the difference in quality, even among like older films. It's like good ones last, bad ones don't.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely true, and we can see that with games. That good games, even if they do have constraints based on you know kind of what we don't know anymore. Or, you know, just even operating system issues. You know, you have to emulate stuff these days. Once If you just get past all those barriers to entry and just put the thing in front of the student, quality will out. I really believe that.
0: Then, of course, there's also a matter of, of a medium. You, you give them a like a high-end PC and tell them to play Zork. They're going to have a different impression than if you gave them your iPhone
1: to do the same. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, too. And the delivery device is a real issue for me. It's getting it more interesting because as iPads and iOS and Android devices are becoming more ubiquitous, I can actually expect or have more reason to expect that my students have a different way of accessing a lot of this material. Because before smartphones really came into their own, we were emulating most stuff, and that can be dicey, you know. You have to get the ROMs to work, and everybody seems to have a different system, and yeah, it's tricky.
0: Speaking of turning on your students, have you managed to turn any of them on to, like, the gaming community, the, the critical gaming community, or your blog in
1: particular? <laughs> you know, it's funny you should ask me that. I Very few of my students know anything about what I do. I mean, they know a little bit about the fact that I'm that games guy. but So they've never Googled your name? Yeah, they, they know about Brainy Gamer and, you know, Wabash does some stuff with it when it's like promotional things, but it's not anything that's really part of what they're thinking. I mean, certainly I, I have some readers here on campus and I, I, my colleagues read some of my stuff sometimes, but you might be surprised how sort of invisible I, I mean, I'm just not students, 18, 19, 20, 21 year old students, by and large, don't read critical gaming websites. They might pop over to Kotaku or One up or whatever and check out a game review or Metacritic rating. They really do metacritic they they actually do use that a lot, but as far as like going over to read a website with some analytical essay on Game X, not so much.
0: Your comments seem to be different than most sites. Was that like on an accidental or was there any like process for fostering an intelligent and respectful community that seems to you've garnered there?
1: I think, you know, the the first piece of advice I got about comments and commenters, I remember, was just bore them to death and they won't come. The trolls, you know, just bore them to death and they, they will not come. And I think yeah, to some degree that I do that. I don't I'm not typically writing some impassioned sort of like argument for why game X is better than game Y, you know, and let's go at it. It, so i think i just don't attract them so much but um in terms of the ones i do attract i do think you have to treat your readers with respect and i try to keep in touch with my readers sometimes it's hard for me to to get everything done and i wish i i, I wish i could respond to every single comment or you know or at least a group of comments come along and i can post some response i've typically been okay at that sometimes i'm better than other times when i'm really busy but um
0: I've seen how long some of those threads can get. Yeah, no, no one's expecting that level of dedication.
1: It's you know when you earlier on you know when you had more when you have more time you can do it and you know when you get your first comment you know like you're just on it five seconds later you're thanking the person for commenting and I you know, went through a couple years of that but um I, I really have a great great affection for the people who've been reading and some of them go all the way back to the beginning and have never left and. They, uh, you know, I've learned so much. You read comments, and people sometimes people. It's not hard to find them if you look at some of my posts. I have, occasionally, more than occasionally, probably every, you know, once a month or so, maybe a little more. Someone posts a comment that's longer than my post. (laughs) You know, that they really just dig in and they have something to say and they want to say it, and that's cool. Yeah. Have you Have you ever responded with? to a comment that was longer than your initial <laughs> post? Sometimes. I mean, I, I should say, too, I sometimes I respond. I usually respond on the post itself. But there are occasions when I want to engage that person outside of my blog. Sometimes I just want to thank them for being so cool. You know, like, they'll sometimes I can tell somebody really goes out of his or her way to just, you know, write a, try to add value to what I wrote. And I might say something on the blog, but I often will, you know, write them on the side, like an email or whatever. And, and just, you know, thank them or, or sometimes just get into a conversation that's about other things. But I love comments and I like that conversation that happens, but I, I always feel like I want to get to know the people who take the time to read my stuff better than I can possibly know them just through, you know, commenting. So I don't know. Sometimes you can strap a, up a conversation on email that's a little more intimate and you find out about, you know, they've got a family and they have a job and they work somewhere and they some other interests. And, you know, I, I kind of like knowing about that stuff.
0: Yeah. Over the years, you've seen you've revealed a lot about your personal life over through your blog as well. Well, as me personally, it was a little strange, like uh, early on, like when you your daughter was just born. You just like had a, you had a section on the podcast where your daughter gives off spoilers to the game that you were just playing. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like little baby gurgle, adorable and cute as babies are. And then like if, like later on later on down the blog, you have this part where you're showing her playing Guitar Hero or a game of her own, and it's like, "Oh my god, this has been years
1: you've been <laughs> doing this." Yes, it's true. It's true. I I love writing about her her name's Zoe and yeah that's fun and my this gets very tricky because I, you know early on you just don't even think about that stuff and you do what you do and everybody's tweeting about hey I'm going to vacation in Tahoe you know <laughs> and I'm going to be gone for two weeks and, and then like you learn that well people read that stuff and then they know you're gone so then like you get robbed and that that not quite where us. i was
0: going with that but okay <laughs> yeah it,
1: it, it's a wonderful thing to do and i don't ever want to stop being able to write but i have to admit you know i'm a little more circumspect about it and uh, i wrote about this you know when after it happened i you know we were robbed i i lost all of my gaming consoles i, I lost all my ps3 all my xbox games that were in this you know cabinet where all that stuff was and uh you know they they wiped us out and um You know, like when you're kind of very public about, you know, I'm talking about all these games I play and all this stuff. You know, everybody must know that I have all this, you know, attractive hardware and games. So come and get it. And they did. And, uh, uh, you know, that really took some recovery time, I have to say, especially for my wife who had trouble sleeping and had all kinds of issues just related to that. So I haven't actually haven't spoken about this since all of that. But we went through this period where, um, we just had a sense and the police did too, that, you know, it had to be somebody who was reading my blog and probably had a sense of what I was up to. And, um, uh, we were upstairs to sleep when they did it. We were, they came in the house in the night while we were there, thought any differently about my readers, but I did think there might, maybe there's somebody out when I say I'm traveling somewhere. So time passes and we just kind of get this into our heads that it's just something we have to live with. And then the police call me a long time later and say, well, we caught the guy that stole your stuff. It's like, really? And he said, yeah, we were dead wrong. We thought it was maybe one of your readers or one of those kind of things. Turns out it was a kid in your neighborhood and they recovered the stuff. I mean, it was pretty much destroyed by then. And, you know, we didn't really get anything back, but we had insurance. So it wasn't anybody related to Brandy Gamer or the blogosphere, anything like that. And so, good
0: old-fashioned sneak thief.
1: (laughs) It was a good old-fashioned crime of opportunity, is what it was. Yeah. I don't know whether to be relieved by that or. (laughs) I was. I was relieved because now that we know the story, it was this you know this punk kid, right? You know, he's doing it. He shouldn't have done it. It was a stupid mistake. You know, he's had some problems, some issues in his life. I know know his family. This is all just real kind of life stuff. And I don't know. I just, I had, I really did. I sighed a big sigh of relief that it wasn't anything to do with the community that I live in, you know, in a virtual way with Brainy Gamer. So. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe that was a little bit of a too long of a story to say that it's all it all turned out fine in the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I was thinking of that,
0: but the story's too good not to <laughs> not to go there. Another thing that you uh published about was your championing of portal into the in, what was that, the freshman class
1: curriculum. Yeah, it's a course called Enduring Questions. It's uh, another another seminar
0: course about oh, I, I forget what it is it's like a, ph- a philosophy seminar course using different works to explore
1: things yeah, or Yeah, that's a that's a wrong. pretty good description. It it's, it's a cross-disciplinary course taught by all of us across the departments here. So, you know, there's history, English, theater, art, philosophy, you know, psychology professors, we all teach it. And so yeah, you we teach Aristotle we teach Gilgamesh. We teach poetry of John Donne. We we teach Elie Wiesel, We teach you know all kinds of stuff. I'm teaching The Watchman <laughs> uh, later <laughs> this week. So they have they read a graphic novel and and in the mix of all those things and they see films and they see theater and so it's a, we define what text means broadly, texts broadly defined work um, basically yeah exactly it, something that has content deliver ideas and the ideas we're exploring are the first half of the course is what does it mean to be human and the second half is how shall we live in the world and we play portal so one of the experiences the students have is to play portal and to situate it with a text that's written by this guy named irving himself in everyday life and a foundationology text that essentially says you know we wear masks Well, How well has it been received? How's it doing? It's, it's gone well. I, It's nice to have done it twice because, you know, you want to typically figure out were you lucky the first time or did you just have a good group the first time or whatever. And I think it actually went better the second time, but that's just because the students the first time gave me some useful feedback on sort of how to approach it. But, yeah, I, th- I think now that I've done Portal a couple of times, I think I might change it up and do another game just to see if another kind of game works as well, I kind of have my eye on the new Bioshock game. We'll see how it goes, but it looks like it has some interesting socio political historical connections you know you want to you want to find something that you can plug into other disciplines that would make a number of faculty interested
0: doesn't also uh, ability to actually, for the students to actually play it make a difference
1: yeah definitely Could
0: portal's usability is like. That was like the number one thing with Valve.
1: Yes, it was great. And I, if, of course, it's super to be able to say, hey, Valve, send me you know X number of licenses for the game. And you pay a certain amount for that through their academic program. And then off you go. You just distribute them. The students can play them either on Mac or PC. And, uh, oh, they do that? Yeah. It turns out that when you give them these licenses, the li- Steam dumps about 10 other games onto that license. So you can play some other games of that period and similar vintage games. And, you know, students can you know, have access to these games. Now, you if you already have a Steam account, you can't use that. You know, the way they run the program is you have to sign on with a particular username that they give you and a certain password that aligns with that license. And then that and then you have access to just those games and you can just play those games.
0: Ah. Huh. That's
1: that's interesting to know.
0: Being that this is critical distance and we're talking to critic, um, what is your critical approach? Like, how do you approach critique? What's your like philosophy towards it?
1: I'm trying to remember, and I'm going to come up blank. There's a a writer who sort of articulated this philosophy that I sort of embrace, and I've quoted it before, but it's, now it's escaping me. It's been a few years, but the basic gist of it is that I I don't find I don't have a lot of interest in critically ripping into something unless there's some valuable lesson maybe to be learned or something. I feel a service I can perform, but it, and I get no pleasure out of sort of hammering on something for it being bad. I find that I get a lot more excited as a critic, trying to dig into a game that works on whatever level for me. And you can talk about the flaws, but it's just significantly more interesting to me to get into a kind of dialogue with the game and with the, the creators of the game on a critical level that tries to say, what is this game attempting to do? What channels does it operate on, if you will? How effectively does it deliver on those objectives, kind of traditional, you know, critical approach to things? But for me, I, it, it's helpful for me to have a kind of a personal connection. Sometimes I'll play a game and I love it and I think it's great and I, I think I'd, I'd like to say something great about it or something useful about it and I, I come up empty. I, I may not have that personal entree where my own set of skills or expertise just doesn't seem to come to bear on that game. I'm not a jack of all trades and I, I can't write equally well about, it, about everything. I, I'm better at certain things.
0: Last year, you uh, wrote about El Shaddai, and that it seems that our critical language for video games doesn't seem inclusive enough to be able to properly converse about a game like
1: El Shaddai. Yeah, it's true. Ah, uh, I love those games—the <laughs> games that so, sort of make us come up short. Like, I mean, where we have to examine the tools we have, and sometimes you, you you look at the tools and you think, "What the hell? I can't. I have no access to these things with these tools." So you have to figure out new ones or you have to adapt the ones you have. And I don't know how well we did that with El Shaddai, but um, I just like it when games come along and challenge us in that way. I think Bayonetta did that to some degree as well. Sometimes games just, they're so stylish. The stylishness is, you know, like fireworks going off and we we keep looking at all that and it's very exciting and it makes it really hard to see what else is happening.
0: So I guess you're saying games where style is over substance, but there's still substance.
1: Yeah, that that sometimes um, we're sort of blinded by style, and sometimes that's because there's nothing else. But and then maybe Bayonetta is like that a little bit, but I I think a game like El Shaddai is more than that and where i find myself coming up empty is so so how do you like do you just then apply game design principles you know so you know like does it should i think about it on a mechanical level you know is it is there some sort of adaptive difficulty system here that i could talk about you know like what what is it where, where do i hitch my wagon and and sometimes it's just it's a sensory experience sometimes it's a surprisingly vivid like, set of dreams you have after you play it and you just can't figure out like why the game is making you have those dreams or those the, the thinking about it when you walk around during the day and that's not mechanical stuff and sometimes it's very difficult to figure out what it actually is good uh, so you're saying more experiential yeah i think that i mean I, that word has become kind of loaded and i sometimes it Experiential feels like the right word and other times it feels like a crutch word, you know I don't know what to say about this other than <laughs> it's very experiential I'm experiencing <laughs> this game and it's really interesting I mean, I, I do think that's where we, we sometimes want to help use other media or other experiences in media to help us It's certainly with Journey for me was I mean, I was having a hard time figuring out why the game was working on me in these different ways simultaneously But also discrete in different places in the game And so, I I mean, I turned to the seven principles of enlightenment, (laughs) which is a (laughs) philosophical construct, you know, but, but if you look at those, the case I tried to make was if you look at those, they break down and they actually sort of break down chapter by chapter in that, in that game, that there really is for me, something happening that provokes very particular human reactions. And I was able to sort of leverage those tools to try to get my access to that game to sort of like help it open up and i don't know if i'm right or wrong about it but when you're at that place where you're just going what is it about this game what is it about this game and something clicks it feels like you know you have this little nirvana and it's you're grateful
0: <laughs> you can't see me but yeah i've been nodding this whole time <laughs> is this like the same approach that you use for like other mediums or does video games have like a unique perspective in how you approach
1: it as opposed to film or theater? This is what I think is really great about video games and what's fun about, about it right now is uh, the medium is that it's not buried in methodologies, uh, critical methodologies yet. Uh, I hope it never does, but there seems to be kind of an inevitable trajectory that way. But other media are very, writing about them is very steeped in methodological or um, ideological approaches so film criticism is you know especially it, it really does break down into sort of schools of thought or theoretical frameworks within which we can see films and it i don't know it's great for academics <laughs> it's great if you're writing books and you know staking out kind of academic turf to section off a place for Marxist study of film or feminist study or materialist feminist study or whatever it is. And that's all, I'm not suggesting it doesn't have any value, it certainly does. But you know, when you go to a conference and you're talking with people about what they do, they all kind of gather up into their little sectioned off areas where they function clicks. with these methodologies. Yeah. We don't really have that in games. And some would say, well, that's just because it's a mature medium, and, you know...
0: We haven't figured uh, it out, or just, maybe it's just yeah, the formalism is just too disparate between various games that
1: a concrete methodology for all of them can't appear. Bingo. I think that's a big part of it. Because it, it's just, what do you mean when you say video game? Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> do you mean Journey? Do you mean Tetris? Like, well, <laughs> it's so... you just can't... It's no, you can't pin it down, and so... I think that's really been great for us. I think it's been very helpful.
0: But does your background in theater, film influence how you look at video games in any way?
1: Yeah, I mean, no question, no question. And I really kind of went crazy with that for a while. It was sort of like Mm -hmm. my thing: is to just constantly figure out how. (laughs) Like, I mean, I love Suda Fifty One. I love. Just he's this really cool designer who has crazy ideas, and I'm just attracted to his kind of chutzpah And I wrote a piece about how he reminded me of you know, directors from the French New Wave. He's sort of a New Wave sensibility director. I think that's an interesting idea. I'm not sure I would write that post today. It's a kind of a comparative analysis. That's you know sort of like here's what I know about the French New Wave, and here's what I know about Suda Fifty One, <laughs> and look, they're alike. Um, and I don't know how valuable that is. I mean, maybe it has value, but. I'm trying to not do that so much, I'm trying to let games stand on their own and not apply other lenses like that, pre-existing lenses, but sometimes it's just inevitable. I mean, Mass Effect 3 is a cinematic game, I mean, it just, <laughs> it just is, so let's not pretend I've, it's not.
0: Uncharted's the better example, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I think in a way it's, it's I think Mass Effect 3 is a little more insidious though, because Uncharted series—they just, just—they wear it on their sleeves. They're trying to make a movie that you can play. I mean, that's like a, that's like a Naughty Dog quote. We want to make a movie that you can play, and I think Mass effect. It puts you in these cinematic experiences without necessarily announcing it in that way. They really borrow on cinematic tropes, especially in those. Like it's one thing to do a little transitional cutscene that's obviously cinematic, but they're also very cinematic just in the way they deal with their conversation scenes. You know how they deal with the camera and how they position what you see related to what the character's seeing. Blah blah blah.
0: Now I know this is gonna spring something on you, but I have you here and I can't help myself. When it comes to the idea of role play, how can you like like in a role playing game? How do you interpret? Like modern role playing games or even older role playing games, the concept of a of a video game role playing game how do you like interpret that in the idea of film of theater in playing through a predetermined part with like I guess you say a personal acting flair
1: well, I find it really interesting if you listen carefully to how um players gamers talk about their experiences. I was talking with some students the other day and they happened to be playing um Kingdoms Kingdoms of Amalur. And I had played it. It has been a little while. I I haven't finished it, but I played it for a while. And they were all just sitting around talking. And everybody was talking about, I, I, I. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. And you start to realize if you listen carefully to the way people talk about their role-playing experiences, they really do function in the first person. And, you know, you don't necessarily... Get that kind of description, the kind of the way they were talking about their experiences with other kind of games. You might say I did this in terms of like I chose this, I I got past level X, but nobody thinks they are Mario. Like maybe some people do, but I don't think we we project (laughs) ourselves onto this Italian plumber. Just that's we we help him move, but he's Mario. But there's something interesting that happens in that crossover, and so it's this beautiful kind of first person, third person mesh, you know, it's simultaneously me. And it's also that character I created and you make these choices about that character. So it's clearly, those are third person choices. It's not you, it's that character with green hair and, you know, like purple pants. But when I play it, it's me or oftentimes players see it as I did this, I did that. And that is so incredibly interesting in terms of, you know, the performative elements of theater, the performative elements of video games and what it means to think about what what character means and how empathy can work, how storytelling can work with this particular unique relationship that games can do. You know, I just I'm fascinated by it.
0: I'm, I'm running out of questions here. Do you have anything further to comment on? Any other area you'd like to explore?
1: I think we've covered quite a few bases. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's
0: just it's just like there's always you always figure that when you're wrapping this up as a like, damn I'm running out of stuff. There's always something. Ju- you feel like there's something right beyond the veil that I should ask. That that's probably the most <laughs> important question, and I can't think of it.
1: Well, I'll ask you one. I I'm curious. I, I'm kind of fascinated f- from a distance because I haven't finished it, and I'm sort of purposely not got involved in this conversation but the whole mass effect 3 ending thing i haven't um, played it okay <laughs> well, <laughs> i'm curious i mean i i find the whole thing not so much the game itself whatever the ending is i've purposely not like i really 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 don't want to know anything about it but um i'm just fascinated by the community's like sense of ownership over it and the influence that it has and the a lot of people seem to think it's like really inappropriate like what are you doing you're telling artists how to do their jobs and i i see that angle like you know these are artists that create the game let's have some respect for it and let's play it but the flip side's really interesting to me that you know no 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 you asked me to be involved in this game and like i am in this game and i don't like this you need to change it and like that has a lot of force it just doesn't like that we're talking about how games are un, a are unique medium that kind of thing doesn't happen in other media players don't the, the consumers
0: uh, it does it does happen in other media how, star wars so, comes to mind
1: oh you mean well yeah well speaking of fandom ownership yeah yeah, yeah I, I get your point
0: there are two made that i've noticed major areas of complaint with the mass effect ending one it doesn't allow my choices to matter it doesn't go to the distance that it should where it's my individual story uh, up to and including where it should have infinite possibilities based on everything you've ever done and then the other flip side of it is yeah it was fine what they did it just wasn't any good
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so you have like two different sets of complaints one where my choices didn't matter and the others where i don't it's fine the choices sort of did what they did but the ending just wasn't good Mm -hmm. and then i have uh, the third complaint where i the third idea where my friend is actually baffled by all these complaints because he finished it up and he said this was the perfect ending for my shepherd. I I don't understand what anyone's talking about.
1: Right. Yeah. And you've got that other little layer of nuance, which is people want each of the endings or each of the threads that get them to certain things. Right. So it's not just like a movie that you don't like the ending, but there's these pivot points where if you make this choice, you don't get to do this or that. And people have to back up and do it each way so they can experience each of them, you know, like that's, (laughs) I, I know people love playing games like that, but that really is a, a unique element to the medium as well.
0: Let's bring this on, but uh, I guess I'll close out with, so what is your favorite game of all time? And and or, what do you think is the best game of all time?
1: Oh my god. Well, my favorite game is Legend of Zelda The Wind Waker. And I love that game. I, I remember way back on my podcast, I had Corvus Elrod on, speaking of people who made a difference early on and got a lot of us going and was encouraging to a lot of us. Corvus was incredible back in the day when we started all this blog stuff.
0: Probably should get him on at some point.
1: Yeah, he's consistently thoughtful and of course he's building a game that he I'm sure he'd love to talk about. Yeah, I remember had him on and I was asking guests at the end of each podcast, Well tell them, what's your favorite game? And another thing i ripped from you yeah (laughs) (laughs) well it's you know it's fun it's fun to know what people like well people steal from the best (laughs) well thank you corvus i didn't expect him to say wind waker and i was so delighted because it's my favorite game i've never heard anyone choose it at that time i think it's become sort of more fashionable to like wind waker now but back then it was sort of still like that game that nintendo messed up i feel like
0: i should just Put pluck down the thirty dollars for a GameCube and
1: oh, just yeah. that, and a f- handful of others. Do it. It's just such <laughs> a oh, it's such a beautiful game. I just love that game. It's so, it's such a soulful game, you know. And it it captures the idea that Link is a boy is just kind of a fact of in these games. Often he's a boy. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's a narrative fact. We move on to the next thing. You know, let's go to the next dungeon. But in in Wind Waker, it, it matters that he's a boy that. It feels like he's a boy, and he sees the world like a boy sees the world, uh, young young boy. And his activities in the world, it just feel they just feel like you're the people who made this game remember what it's actually like to be a boy. Uh, sort of experience.
0: like Huckleberry Finn riding down the raft.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It's very much like that. Yeah, it. And he's not all powerful, and he's not. He finds these tools that he craftily figures out how to use, and. And of course, visually, it's just, you know, sumptuous. I just, that art style just slays me. I, I love it. And
0: and it lasts to this
1: day. It does. It looks just as good today. Yeah. So that's my favorite game. The best game? I have no idea. I really don't. <laughs> I, I couldn't even answer that question. I well, like, I don't know, like critically,
0: like what do you think most important, I guess? I don't know how to ask it in any other
1: way. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I'll, I'll cop out and say, um, since you were talking about this period where 2007 or so and when all this critical conversation about games started where where your podcast and game critics really i think would have come out of all of this this momentum i think the game that launched all of that in my opinion was bioshock bioshock was the game that just happened to be there at the time and it was interesting enough and there was enough to talk about with it and the designers who worked on it were clever enough to help be part of that conversation and Helped teach us that designers can be in that conversation and ludonarrative dissonance, you know. <laughs> I will defend that term to the end of time. Yes, but I love that. <laughs> I like that term because it's a critical, you know, it was like a, we were being thoughtfully critical about a game. You know, we were applying strict standards to it.
0: Yeah. I had to invent something to, yeah. to talk about a very, very specific moment. And that's what I, yep. for the, then it's co-opted by everyone and they don't even understand it's a very very specific thing it doesn't include everything
1: indeed and and i think the fact that we actually had to do that with that game that the game merited that kind of consideration and that provoked us in that way and it's such a you know just there's, there's a there's a lot to talk about it's not the best game ever made it's probably not the most influential game ever made but it it. For the purposes of what you and I do in trying to foster this critical community, I think is a pretty damn important game.
0: And having said that, you just reminded me like of a whole new set of things I wanted to address. Oh. I, I don't know if you have the time for that, though. Or sure, or yeah, I've got, I've got a little bit more time. At the end of 2007, I, I don't remember if this was a post or a podcast, you actually brought up how you weren't feeling like... You were sort of feeling iffy on the fact that there seemed to be like a very large consensus over what the best game of the year was, and if that says something about the critical community, or the or if that year wasn't just that good a year of games. And you, you brought up the idea of how like one certain play swept the Tony Awards, and if the idea of that a little more variety... Is indicative of a of a rather stagnant year, or do you remember what I'm talking about? Because
1: yeah, I do. I I think I do. Gosh, that's yeah, that's been a long time ago. Yeah, it was. <clears throat> I think what I was referring to was um, it's actually not a very healthy sign at all when one film or one play just sweeps everything. Um, and it's such the obvious choice. Typically, it just means that there wasn't that much interesting happening, or if there was. It got ignored or something, but...
0: To me, my response, and I've been wanting to say this for years, is what if it you did have a large variety, and then just one game just stepped out in front and was just that much better, and you still did have the great variety behind it otherwise?
1: Yeah. On the I surface, mean, you that, couldn't
0: tell the difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there have been years like that.
0: But then, of course, the next year, you had your year-end confab podcast, and everyone chose a
1: different best game of year. Yeah. I don't really think it matters... If there's a best game of the year, I think it matters if there are enough terrific games for people to feel passionate about that game being their favorite. And that if that's a pretty broad palette of games, that's a very good sign. And I remember a couple of times when I did my year-end show, I would ask people to choose something and I... I didn't want them to choose the same game, but I didn't want them to tell anybody what their choices was. I was afraid I'd have to go back to each and say, okay, well, that one's chosen, so do you have a second pick? And I actually think I only had to do that like once or twice. Like just naturally, everybody chose a different game. And I don't think that suggested a weak year, but more just you know, these are pretty discriminating people who have pretty, you know, their tastes are pretty refined, I think. And, and
0: also very broad.
1: Yeah, exactly. They play a lot of games, too, so they know what they're talking about. It's not like this is the only game they've played, and they happen to have liked it. And So, yeah, I think that just suggested that things are kind of... They're very active, and you know, another good thing about games compared to other media is that when you talk about the Oscars or whatever, the Tonys, you know, Mm -hmm. they only consider like the AAA titles. I mean, they've got like separate subcategories for like, you know, best short animated or whatever, but you know, when you pull together people for the best game, they'll name some indie title. I mean, a lot of people would choose, like, Bastion this year, for example, last year. They love that game, you know, and it's, it's an indie game, and Flower was a little... Triple-A indie game, but yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's not not like one guy in a bedroom, but it was one guy in a bedroom that made the music for that game, though. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, in his bedroom.
0: Yeah, I, no, I, I, Bastion was the second best game of the year for me last year.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you liked it too. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very good sign that number one, that we have a broad, you know, series of choices, but also that they tend to come at various levels of like, uh, you know, the, the, the team, the size of the team, the size of the studio, the promotional budget, all those things. You're, you're kind of all over the map among critics
0: and you've, and that's a good sign. Oh yeah, to the future what are you, what are you hoping for the future of games and what where they go as an art form?
1: You know, I don't think we have to worry about it. I go to GDC and I hear some people, you know, sort of shaking their fists about games need to x or games should start doing this or whatever. And I don't know, I I I think they're doing quite well. I think that there is a pretty vigorous conversation that continues about the nature of games what games could do, what they could aspire to do, that there's still passionate people who aren't satisfied with the limits and the constraints that we've placed on games, and they just keep digging and digging. Not just a few people. You go to IndieCade and you see some just fascinating designers who are just pushing at the edges of the medium every way they can think of. There's no scarcity of really clever, inventive people. And the cool thing is that The tools they need to make games are more available, more accessible for less money than they ever have been in history.
0: Sort of the ananthropia argument at this point. Here are three free tools you can make games. Go.
1: Go. Yeah, exactly. I I think – I don't mean to be Pollyanna about it. I I do think we have significant issues when it comes to diversity questions and questions of – there's a certain kind of entitlement, I think, mentality – in the community, and I think there's there's this whole dark side of of what the games community looks like sometimes, and there's significant issues uh, related to diversity in the in the in the employment force at these studios and uh, you know these are these are significant issues, so i don 't mean to minimize them, but it does seem to me that that's not a secret. It's not like somebody just thought of that. I think, you, again, at GDC, I, I heard manver Hare and, and other people talking about this again with large audiences listening to them and feeling pretty passionate about it. So it's in the air. People care about it. remains to be seen how they address it.
0: And I guess on that happy note, we can end here. This has been the CDC Podcast. Thank you, Michael Abbott, for joining me. You can find his work at brainygamer.com. He, is also, he also is one of the co-founders of the Vintage Game Club and well I think I don't really need to reintroduce you after this after the last hour. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming on Michael Abbott it was great to talk you to you one-on-one.
1: Oh, it was great talking to you, Eric thank you and if people want to listen to more podcasts. Uh, I've got a new one coming like I said I've got a surprise guest. We're going to reboot the podcast
0: in a new It'll- format. <laughs> Most likely by the time you're listening to this, it'll have already been out and you'll have listened to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. I'm slow. Thank you. It's been a blast. Thank you.